Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. From the sidelines of the Asian Studies Association of Australia's biennial conference, where she'll be presenting the inaugural keynote address of the Association of Mainland Southeast Asia Scholars, our guest this episode on new books in Southeast Asian Studies is Catherine Bowie, the Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her new book is Of Beggars and Buddhas, The Politics of Humor in the Wasantara Jataka in Thailand, published in 2017 by the University of Wisconsin Press. Catherine, welcome to the show. Kim. And we're also delighted to have a special guest interviewer on this episode, Patrick Jory, a senior lecturer in Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, who will be joining me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University and host of the channel. Patrick, thanks also for being here. Thank you. Catherine, what is the Wasantara Jataka? The Jataka is just basically another word for some of the folktales about the previous lives of the Buddha. In the Pali Canon, the main textual body for Theravada Buddhism, there are 547 Jatakas, or stories of the previous lives of the Buddha. And there's actually many more that circulate in the folk traditions, particularly in northern Thailand. But of these 547, the last 10 are considered the most important. And in each of these 10, the Buddha is learning different aspects of morality that he will need in order to reach enlightenment. Uh, Life is the historical Buddha, Gautama. Of these 10, the most important is the Vasantara Jataka, which is the very last one before he is born as the historical Buddha. And in his life, he learns to perfect the virtue of generosity. And he does this in a rather memorable way by giving away everything from the moment of his birth, even while he was in his mother's womb. His mother was feeling this need to give things away and goes on through his life giving away jewels and a magical rainmaking elephant and finally his children and his wife. A very memorable story, one that I used to hate. Why did you hate it? I thought it was appalling that a moral figure would be doing something like giving away his wife and children. So I thought this was a story that really should be ignored. I wasn't even interested in trying to figure out why this story was so important over the past couple thousand years of Theravada Buddhist history. And 
never really noticed that the main people in the audience listening to it typically were overwhelmingly female. Just a bad anthropologist ignoring really important cues that I should have been paying attention to. So was it attention to those cues that led you to the work that culminated in this book or something else that sparked your interest that changed your position? No, I was not paying attention at all to the Vasantra Jataka. I just stumbled into this because at the time, and it's a very long shaggy dog story, I was interested in electoral laws and vote buying, and there were headlines in the paper in 2004 about a female senator from the Northeast who was wondering why women were not allowed into certain parts of northern Thai temples. And because she was a Northeasterner, she was surprised at this tradition in the North. And because I always work in the North, I didn't realize that in the Northeast that there weren't the same taboos on women. I I was exploring the topic in in the North, and I wanted to interview this very important figure. And this all has to do with the right of women to ordain as bhikkhuni. So this is an entirely different story. But I wanted to interview this one key figure who had conducted a cursing ceremony for this senator, uh, which seemed like an odd thing for a Buddhist figure to be pushing for. Anyway, so I wanted to interview him. I needed to find common ground. He's a northerner. I've, I've always worked in the north. I love the north. And so I was trying to think, what are all the things that I knew about the North to be able to talk to him about? And I remembered going to funerals where I would hear tapes of what were called Dujok, which I translated at the time as joking monks, not realizing that these were the monks that performed the Chuchok chapter. So Du is a northern word for monk. Chok was a, a, a sort of an elision, so it became Dujok, which is the monk who performs the Chuchok chapter of the Vasantra Jataka. So the Vasantra Jataka is divided into 13 chapters, and one of them is called the Chuchok chapter. It's named after the beggar whose name Chuchok. And then I got a hold of some of these tapes uh, that were performed at funerals. Just that's one chapter because it's funny and everybody in the audience is laughing uproariously. So we went into town, got some of these tapes, and then I was asking more, are there any joke left? Turned out there was one not too far away. We went to visit him. He was relaxed that afternoon and just started laying out how this used to be and how funny it used to be and all the jokes that he could no longer tell because it would shock the modern audiences. So that was the beginning of this book because, like I said, I had always hated this story. It had never dawned on me that this could be funny. And all of a sudden I began to get into this whole other world and I uh, was interviewing monks in the north. I went to the central region, found out that they had a very different interpretation. They did not think that the Chuchok beggar character was funny. I did interviews in the Northeast, began to get a sense that it's a more muddled picture. Sort of funny, but not quite in the intense body tradition that I was discovering in the North. You've alluded to the fact that you're interested in regional variation. Can you develop that last point and get us to the core of the argument? When I had read the Vasantra Jataka, as just a poly text, Chuchok or Jujaka just seemed like a horrible character. He's described as, you know, with all these deformities. The focus seemed to be on Vasantara so that he would learn morality, charitable giving, so that he could be reborn as the Buddha. And it never dawned on me to switch the focus to actually look at Chuchok. So when I began to appreciate the humor in the Northern tradition, that's when I began to do these interviews in other regions. And I found that there were lots of differences. They don't even perform this reading 
at the same time of the year. In the Northeast, they actually have a month that's dedicated, it's Bun where they perform it. And in the North, it was generally done in around November for the full moon festival, doing Nipeng. And in the Central region, it was typically done during Buddhist Lent. Just the timing was different. The way uh, hosts were found in the, in the Northeast and the Central region, they were drawn by lots because none of the laity wanted to have to host the Chuchok chapter. But in Northern Thailand, it's done by birth year, and everybody wants to be able to host the Chuchok chapter because that's the most fun. So there are lots and lots of differences that, that be- began to emerge. And the other part was, as I would ask villagers, what was their favorite chapter? In the Northeast, they liked the last chapter where the, the family is reunited. And I think that's because it, it resonates emotionally in the Northeast because so many of the family's children are working in Bangkok or elsewhere. So this is a time when a lot of the families, uh, the kids come home and, and, and join in the celebration. Northern Thailand obviously loved the Chuchok chapter. And in the central region, they tended to emphasize the Kuman chapter, the chapter where the children are given away, which is a really sad tearjerker chapter. Patrick's work shows clearly how the court got involved, has been involved in shaping an interpretation of the Vasantra Jataka. But I think at the, at the village level, they enjoyed the bodiness, and this dies out in the central region, uh, I think because of the court influence. And I think it stayed intact the longest, uh, up until about World War II, in the northern region. In the Northeast, it's a little mixed. So when I went to performances in the Northeast, there was still humor, but it was more sort of burlesque. It didn't have the kind of political edginess that one finds in the older Northern accounts. The monk who performs the Chuchok chapter in the North, it's up to his creativity because the the audience has heard the story a million times. In order to keep the audience engaged, he has to always come up with new comic lines, new forms of poetry. And then there are also rhyming patterns. One of the monks has a whole scene that he invents of Chuchok going up. Well, he's actually in the hells or trying to get reborn on Earth. So he's going around to various people to be his parents. Nobody wants to be his parents so he can get reborn on Earth again. But the rhyming pattern, When you hear... The phrasing, you, the name of the person that he is going to add, you know, Lung uh, Ai or Lung Mao, they're all saying no, but then it, it ties into the rhyming pattern. So there's just a lot of very clever stuff. But the part that's probably the most shocking is the for modern audiences, the bodiness. The beggar Chucho ends up marrying a young girl, a teenager. So everybody in the village is jealous. And there are all these incidents that happen. And again, it's up to the Dukjo monk's creativity how many incidents he, he invents of conflicts between villagers. And so husbands and wives, other couples in the village, they're all looking at, you know, here's this old beggar and he's got this young wife and she's a wonderful wife and does everything dutifully. And they've got these lousy wives that are stubborn. And so they're, wonder, you know, wonderful possibilities um, one of them that one of the monks gives is a description of a husband and wife ha- having a fight, and the husband grabs her by the hair, so it's by the top of her head, and she grabs him, and then there's a pause, and we all know that she's grabbed him by his lower hairs, <laughs> which nowadays for modern 
audiences that a monk would be telling a story like that. I mean, that's just impossible. So it was kind of an interesting adventure back in time. If I could perhaps come in here, Catherine. But first, could I say, yeah, what, a, what a wonderful book, and I urge your listeners to, to please go out and, and read it. We've both written books about the Vesantra Jataka, but we, we each take, I think, uh, quite a different view on, on the story. On the cover of your book, there's a picture of one of the famous episodes from the Vasantra Jataka when the royal guard Jetavud is trying to chase Chuchok down from the tree and Chuchok manages to deceive him. And I think that is very symbolic of the argument that you're making in the book. Could you perhaps elaborate on that image and the argument behind it? The prevailing argument has been that the Vasantra Jataka was a means for the monarchy to portray itself as a Vasantra or as a, a virtuous Dharma Raja, moral ruler that in a future life will become a Buddha. And that is an argument that you have articulated beautifully in your wonderful book that I draw on heavily for my own. But there was a, a contrasting possibility that had not really been appreciated, which is that this is a story that can have multiple readings. We both share this view that this book has a political message. But I was focusing then on the inverse political message, which is how this story becomes a critique of royalty through the character of Chuchok, seen as a trickster figure which is the northern version. So there are other trickster figures in Thailand that, that we know about, Siang Miang, Sita Nunchai, and Chuchok fits into this genre of trickster figures. So when you think about the story, not from the views of Prince Vasantara and royalty, but you think of it from the perspective of the peasantry and Chuchok, and you think about how amazing it is that a peasant, a beggar no less, would end up, would even think of going and asking a member of the royal family for their two children to be their wife's servants. It's already absurd. And it goes on, and he ends up in the royal palace, and he's wined and dined by the king and queen and fed every imaginable thing with beautiful, bare-breasted palace women. This is totally absurd. It's an inversion of everything that makes any sense. And that part starts with that image of Chuchok up the tree with the royal guard. Who are you and where are you going? And you, know, you can't get past because I'm guarding the royal family. And he's able to trick the royal guard, which is not going to happen in real life. So there, there's this other reading of the Vasantra Jataka, which I think is also a fun reading to consider. Our two interpretations... Dovetail. Another one of the fascinating aspects of the book I found was, as you show, the, the, the royal court in Bangkok seeks to limit humorous aspects of the story. This controlling program, I guess, starts off in the central region, moves progressively through different parts of the country, but the north, it seems to me from your book, is the part of the country which holds out the longest. Could you perhaps elaborate on that? The process by which the North is able to hold on to a more earthy, subaltern, dare I say, a reading of the Vasantra Jataka. Yeah, I noticed as I was doing these interviews, the Vasantra Jataka is very strong in the Northeast to this day, is performed annually 
in pretty much most villages in the Northeast. It used to be all. It, it's declining in the urban areas. And actual performance is sometimes being cut short so that it's only two or three hours. And instead of having lots and lots of monks performing it, uh, they may only have two or three sort of reading a summary version because they all know the story. So it's still very strong in the Northeast. And I was surprised as I was doing interviews in the central region and the northern region that it, it was declining. There were lots of temples that hadn't had a performance in 30, 40 years. So that was one of the things that struck my interest. It's like, why is it strong in the Northeast, fading in, the, in these other two regions? And as I was doing more research, I began to look at the role of the Tamayut order, which was the royal order under the control of the court. And the court was sending Tamayut monks to the Northeast, bringing Northeast monks to Bangkok for training in the Tamayut order. Very long, going way back to the first Tamayut temple in the Northeast with uh, Tamayut Abbot was 1851. So the Tamayut order comes much, much later to Northern Thailand. The first temple with a Tamayut abbot is not until 1926 in the northern region. So Tamayut influence was much weaker in the north, and Bangkok influence in the north was always problematic. And that was symbolized by the resistance uh, led by a monk named Kuba Siwijai, who is the most famous monk of northern Thailand. If you go to Chiang Mai and you go up to the main tourist destination, which is Wat Papadu Sutave, Sivijai built that road up, and there's a shrine to him that everybody goes to. But he was part of a movement that resisted Bangkok influence. He was sent for investigation in Bangkok in 1920 and 1935 through 36. Over 300 monks were forcibly disrobed in 1936. So that marks then, I think, the end of the time where the North had its own independence because those 300-plus monks would have been monks that knew how to perform the Vasantara Jataka Northern style. After these monks are disrobed, Bangkok sends monks that have been trained. They could be Northern monks, but they were trained in Bangkok and sends them to become the abbots of these temples. Mm. And, of course, the Tamayot is the order that really disparages the, the Sartre Jataka. I think they, for, for a time, they actually banned performances of them. So I think it's a really interesting to sort of see how this sort of modernizing, purifying influence spreads out from Bangkok, but it's, it reaches the, the north later than elsewhere, and which perhaps explains why these more yeah, sort of boy performances last longer in the north. Yep, absolutely. And the, the Tamayut order, I've only heard of one Tamayut temple that performs the Vasantara Jataka. Other than that, their general view is that these Jataka stories are silly myths. They're not really Buddhist. They're pre-Buddhist. And their emphasis is on the life of the historical Buddhas. So the second part of the book is organized around three key interpretations, two of which we've touched on to some extent already. One concerning the part of Chujuk as trickster, Another threat that that story posed, and that's where Tamiu comes into the discussion, and also as deity. Perhaps before we turn to the deity interpretation, is there anything else about this chapter of the story in particular that's, that made it threatening? I think when you read 
the Vasantara Jataka through the lens of the trickster beggar, Chucho, in the context of tremendous poverty, the, a large percentage of the population were brought in as war captives and were having a very difficult life. I think their identification was with the beggar. They could identify with all of his earthly desires. But the story was always performed together with the Pratmalai Sutra in the north and the northeast. And in the Pratmalai Sutra, the monk Pratmalai goes into the hells and finds out what's going on there, but also goes up into the heavens and sees the Maitreya Buddha, which is the future Buddha. The future Buddha tells Pratmalai to tell people on earth that if they want to be reborn in the days of the Maitreya Buddha, that they need to listen to the Vasantara Jataka performance within a 24-hour period. So in the north and the northeast, they're very strict. This entire performance must be completed in 24 hours. And the belief in Maitreya is very strong, particularly in the north, but also in the northeast. And it's the belief in the Maitreya Buddha that fuels uh, many of the millenarian movements. And that's what the court was concerned about. Could you say a little bit more about that briefly? Because it really is a fascinating part of the book, the tension between those adherents and those parts of the Sankha, the Buddhist order that insist upon Gautama as being central to religious practice and those that are arguing for the place of Maitreya to the point that you mentioned some of your interlocutors referring to the historical Buddha as the cheating Buddha, which is striking to say the least. <laughs> yes, I, I had not appreciated it just how much they were living in this cosmological world until my first interview with this villager who was asking me if I knew the difference between the Gautama Buddha and the Maitreya Buddha and told me the story about how Maitreya, Gautama, and the various Buddhas, they're in the heavens, and the god Indra says that, you know, one of them is to descend onto earth. And he gives them all a lotus blossom and tells them, whosoever lotus blooms first will descend to earth. So Maitreya is actually open first, but Gautama caught uh, sight of that, stole the lotus, zipped over to see the, his father, the god Indra, you know, and there he was on earth. And Maitreya is in the heavens going, what happened? So a very common portrayal of the Buddha today that we'll see in temples is the Buddha sitting cross-legged with one hand pointing to the earth, which is calling the earth to witness to the merit he had made in his previous life as Vasantara. But to these northerners, the reason the, the Buddha is not sitting cross-legged with both palms in his lap balanced, but rather pointing to the ground, is because he can't really concentrate fully on his meditation because he knows that he stole the lotus. So it's very clear that there are very, very different interpretations, you know, that you have to get out and talk to the villagers to get a full sense of the variety of interpretations. And Catherine, we'll pause briefly here for a sponsor's message. And when we come back, we'll turn to a little bit more of a discussion on interpretations on Jujuga as deity. And thereafter, the methods that you used in conducting the research, the status of the Wasantara Jataka in Thailand today and what you're working on presently. 
new books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where Patrick Jory and I are talking with Catherine Bowie about her new book of Beggars and Buddhas. Catherine, you, you said the uh, story of the Maitreya Buddha, the future Buddha, is intimately connected to the Vasantra Jataka, and that raises the whole issue of millenarianism. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how millenarianism influenced northern Thailand in the sort of late 1930s, 20th century, which may have lent itself to a, a different interpretation of the Sandra Chattaka. The Bangkok court was clearly very concerned about these peasant uprisings that were taking place in the northeast and in the north at the turn of the 20th century in particular. And as they were trying to expand their administrative control, they were getting more and more backlash. The northern lords were already going on on these raids, uh, fighting wars, and then taking the population back from wherever they had been, relocating them in northern Thailand. There was already considerable poverty and suffering. The missionary accounts from 1892 describe one of the famines where he went into the villages and saw uh, people were too weak to cremate or bury any of the bodies, and they just dumped them into wells and covered them. It was clear from from the earlier wave of of oral histories that I was gathering that there was this myth of the subsistence economy and how there was fish in the waters and rice in the fields and everybody is happy and, and carefree. But the reality that was emerging from my oral histories was very different. The majority of villagers were falling short of rice each year. I interviewed people that were describing going up into the mountains some cases stealing rice and very proud of the fact that their magic was stronger than the magic protecting the the local fields uh, mountain fields you know walking several days in order to be able to find rice to feed their families people described digging up tubers and they're actually poisonous and they would take several days to be able to prepare them to to mix with rice to stretch the little rice they had uh, out more so it was a period in the early 20th century of tremendous People. So this Vasantara Jataka would have resonated emotionally. The bond, the hope for uh, social justice represented by Maitreya. And Kubasi Vijay was seen as a tonbun or an incarnation of Maitreya. Uh, he was charged with being a traitor because of rumors that he had the Sikantai sword of Indra, the sword of social justice. Now, a lot of these historical facts are not in the archival record. So how did you come by them? My reinterpretation was based on doing oral histories. So that particular body of work, I interviewed over 500 people, most of whom were over the age of 80, in about 400 villages across the Chiang Mai Valley. And then for my research on the Vasantara Jataka, I started with who were the uh, joking monks, the Dukjok in the north, and I did interviews with them. And there I was just trying to learn about the humor because I was just shocked that Monks would be dressing up in costume. That's inconceivable today. Arriving in the, the 
temple with dogs to represent the scene that's on the cover of the book with the royal guard and Chuchokapa tree surrounded by dogs. So at first I was just trying to get a sense of the northern telling. And then I was down in Bangkok and I had an interview with one of the senior monks. And he did not think that the Vasantra Jataka was funny and that the Chuchok character was actually a frightening ghoulish figure. So then I determined that I needed to do more interviews with monks in the central region. And I was curious about who performed the Chuchok chapter. And I interviewed several central Thai monks who performed this chapter and asked them how they got into it. And they said it's because nobody else wanted to perform this chapter. This is a favorite chapter in the North. You have to be a skilled comedian, etc. Each each of the chapters has a special kind of voice that you should have. So the final chapter, the Nakonkan, you're supposed to have a big, booming voice. And then if you do the Matsi chapter, or the Kuman chapter, that's the mother, where the mother is being given away, or the children are being, you're supposed to be someone with a high voice. So each of the chapters has a specific kind of characteristics. But in, in northern Thailand, the monk who performs the Chuchok chapter is supposed to be a comedian. In the central region, it's an old man. And so one of the uh, monks who performs this chapter was saying, nobody wants to have to perform a chapter acting like an old man, particularly monks that are planning on disrobing and are looking for (laughs) possible spouses. (laughs) So it was not a chapter that people wanted to perform. And then when I went into the Northeast, I was curious how they performed it. I interviewed monks and villagers asking people what was their favorite chapter, how the story had changed over time. And I also, you know, I got tapes of performances that are, some of the monks have taped their performances. There are videos that I was able to get, lots of photos, trying to get a sense of how this had changed over the course of the century in the three regions. You're insistent that oral history is not just or perhaps not even a a gap-filling exercise. What else is it doing for you? Why is oral history important? I was at a conference last year and there were graduate students asking me about my use of oral history because they had advisors who were telling them that oral history was unreliable and they shouldn't be using it. So since that's sort of been the core of how I've approached my research as a historical anthropologist uh, or a political anthropologist, depending on which hat I'm wearing, I was shocked And it made me start to think about oral histories. And at least I thought there was a consensus that oral histories fill in the gaps in the archival records. So very often you can't get a sense of women's voices because nobody bothered to write about them. In Thailand, it's very hard to get a sense of how ordinary villagers lived because British colonial officials were interested in one set of information. The American missionaries were interested in trying to figure out how to get people to convert. The sources are all biased. So I had thought at least there was a consensus among scholars that oral histories could fill in these gaps in the archival record. But as I thought about it more, I also began to realize that oral histories do more than that. They can change the kind of prevailing academic paradigms by which history is currently being interpreted. So, for example, the subsistence economy. The number of times you'll read in tourist guidebooks to Thailand about how there are fish in the waters and and rice in the fields is astonishing. Everybody talks about how the villagers lived in a subsistence economy. They might not have been rich, but they could grow their own rice and weave their own clothing. And so oral histories made it possible to get a sense of how that's a complete fabrication. That is not their lives. 
Oral histories are a way to uh, begin to reinterpret a lot of information based on actual accounts from villagers. Let's go briefly to the last of the three interpretations that you offer in the book, which is the beggar's deity. How is that possible? All of the characters, in a way, are sacred. It's a, it's a jataka. It's about the previous life of the Buddha, so it's already in this kind of magical, sacred world. In the Pali versions of the story, each of the characters, at the end of the jataka, we learn that you know the deer is reborn as Gotama, and this creature is reborn as Gotama's wife, or the mother, or whatever. So at the end of the Vasantara jataka, uh, yes, Vasantara is reborn as the Buddha. And Chuchok is reborn as Tevatat or Tevadatta. So the incarnation of evil causes schism in the Buddhist community. So I was shocked was as I was learning that there are monks that are making amulets of Chuchok, which shop owners are keeping in order to attract customers. Because after all, Chuchok was able to get not only Vasantra's children, but his wife, Chuchok, reincarnated as, as Indra. That's just, I, too hard to explain right now. So shop owners figure, well, if Chuchok got the children, that would be good. So they want to attract customers. So that is why they have these Chuchok amulets. So monks are blessing these amulets and making them. So I was, why would a, a monk be comfortable creating a, a figure that's going to be reincarnated as Tevata? It turns out, talking to the monk, that... The explanation is that ultimately, over time, Tevatat himself is going to become a Buddha. And so it's okay to be making amulets of this greedy old man. (laughs) And there are some other remarkable instances of how he has emerged as a deity in a present day. You tell a story of a household which is full of... Yes, this is a, a, a woman in Bangkok. So she now has a house, it's called Chuchok House, which has literally thousands of images, uh, all sizes of Chuchok. And the background to that is that she was on kidney dialysis. Uh, it was getting rough. She needed a kidney transplant. And her, I can't remember if it was mother or her aunt, gave her an amulet of Chuchok. So she prayed to the amulet for a kidney, And the next day, her long-lost brother calls her, actually needing money, and finds out that she needs a kidney. So he donates the kidney, and she recovers. So her job was as a breast masseuse. And so her clientele, when they heard that this little amulet had these magical powers, they wanted to pray to it, and pray to it for lottery numbers. And lo and behold, one of the clients' lottery number came in. Word got out. There was discussion. They, you know, how to how to repay this Chuchok figure, and they decided he was a dirty old man. He liked young women, and so to repay him for help with uh, winning the lottery, they would provide him with coyote dancers. So these are bar girl dancers. So they are performing about twice a month to dance for Chuchok. This is in Bangkok. So that story really does bring us to the present day and the question of what is the status of the Wisandra Jataka in modern-day Thailand. It seems, in some respects, the story you're telling is one of decline, but in other respects, one possibly of new iterations and interpretations emerging. Yes, it's kind of hard to evaluate because in some sense, 
It's coming back. In the Northeast, it's being used for the promotion of tourism. So one of the provinces in the Northeast, Royette, it's turning into a huge thing that gets publicized for domestic tourism and international tourism, using real elephants and fantastic costumes and, and the whole thing. And I've also seen some of that in northern Thailand, that some communities are using their local development funds that are for cultural heritage to host performances of the Vasantara Jataka. But when I talk to people in Bangkok, particularly middle class, upper middle class, and they ask me what I'm doing, and I say, oh, I was researching the Vasantara Jataka, they just look at me like, why would you waste your time with such a stupid story? And I used to sympathize with that view. I thought it was a horrible story. And now I find myself very sad that this story is losing its power, that it is changing from a story that teaches generosity to this interpretation of shopkeepers to help them get stuff, get customers, get lottery numbers. It's no longer a story about giving, but a story about getting. It's odd that, that this story has had such an impact on my life that my interpretation of it is changed so much that a story that I used to hate is now a story that I am so sad that more people don't know. Yeah, so it's a story that uh, I think for many in, in Thailand is fading in meaning, but because I've talked to Patrick before, I know that he also has encountered various monks and others for whom the Vasantara still is, is uh, influential. I'm just interested in the ideological function from the kind of the, the dominant ideology point of view of the Vasantara Jataka as enunciating an idea of sacred kingship. And your wonderful book looks at it from the sort of counter-hegemonic view, which perhaps lends itself to a more democratic reading of, uh, of the story. So you have these sort of tensions between us, the, the kind of royalist reading and the kind of democratic read, reading. If I can just say something a little bit about the royalist reading, I think that kind of ideology is still around. And of course, it, you can't, if you look at the, sort of the situation of the monarchy in Thailand today, I think as long as the monarchy retains its prestige, that royalist reading will still be floating around the place. And of course, uh, we remember King Pumipon's uh, book, Pramaha the, uh, from the based on the Mahajanaka Jataka, where we see that idea of the Bodhisattva perfecting himself and in doing so, helping the nation in, in King Pumipon's book. So, so I think that, that ideology is still around. And not, or not necessarily confined to the royal court or the monarchy. And just one interesting incident recently with the rather infamous monk Praputa Isara, who I think a couple of months before he was arrested, contacted the police to lay charges against a famous uh, Thai pop star for defaming the Vasantra Jataka. So for this particular month, the Vasantra Jataka was still very important to the extent that he was willing to ask for charges to be, to be laid on someone for defamation. And it, it turns out this particular monk, Putta Isra, also seems to have been immersed in the ideology of the Vasantra Jataka in that he gave on an interview, as I understand, where he declared his intention to become a future Buddha, i.e. that he was a bodhisattva, like the bodhisattva in the Vasantra Jataka, perfecting himself to one day become enlightened as a Buddha. So I think... That, that ideology is still around if you look hard enough for it. It's hard to read. I mean, certainly in the current climate, the space of freedom of the political trickster has really shrunk. It's hard to know to what extent the various messages of the Jataka stories are fading among the middle class, the upper class, but still perhaps resonating among villagers, certainly an older generation that remembers monks telling these stories as a way of teaching the young kids. In the old days, all young boys 
pretty much a very high percentage of young boys got their education in the temple. And so these Jataka stories were a really important way of passing on lessons about morality and preparing people for, for life. And now people go to the, the secular schools where these stories are no longer important. So I, I don't know. You know, it's sort of a, a broader question about the future of discussions about morality. Is it also that the Jataka is being supplanted or superseded by other forms of subversive humor or other resources that are available today to be subversive through a different kind of politics of humor from yeah, what uh, you study? Absolutely. So I mean, that part I uh, always enjoy, seeing the forms that political opposition is taking in Thailand. So they'll use themes from movies like The Hunger Games, Even pizza, there's a company, their phone number is, has 112 in it. So people don't talk about things that are sensitive. They'll instead talk about pizza, and everybody knows the reference. So there, there are other avenues for this kind of political creativity that once got voice through the figure of Chuchong. The reference being to the section of the penal code for Les Majestés. Yes. I think we should turn in closing to what you're working on now and what we can look forward to next. These days I'm doing lots of interviews about this monk Kubasi Wichai that I mentioned earlier. So he is the most important monk for northern Thailand, arrested multiple times and investigated in 1920 on charges of treason, and then again sent down to Bangkok in 1935-36, and was not allowed to return to the north until he signed a document agreeing to abide by the rules of the Central Thai monastic order, and over 300 monks were disrobed. Remarkably, his life is basically being erased. He's recognized as important, as a famous monk, built the road up to Wapatat, the famous tourist destination in Chiang Mai province, to some extent uh, recognized for the over 100 temples that he built across the northern region. But the political part of his story is being erased. Lots of people have no idea that all these monks disrobed and have never really thought about what the impact of that many northern monks disrobing would have had on the practice of northern Thai Buddhism. And I got into all of this precisely because I was pursuing the Vasantra Jataka. The fact that all the sources indicated that uh, these body performances of the Vasantra Jataka uh, declined after World War II, and I thought, what was going on? And then it dawned on me that obviously... This was tied with all those monks being disrobed so that that northern tradition of performing the Vasantra Jataka would have died out as the northern abbots were being replaced by abbots trained in the Bangkok, a more Tamayut-leaning tradition. So I'm, that's what I'm doing. I'm interviewing lots of people, uh, going to as many of the hundred-plus temples that he built to see if there are any people in their 90s that can still tell me good stories about when he came, going to the, the various villages if I have any indication that the abbot was disrobed, seeing what stories villagers remember, people, following the leads before they're completely gone. People in their 90s with good memories and good hearing. That's right. <laughs> Catherine Bowie, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss of beggars and Buddhists. Thank you for having me do this. <laughs> It's been a, a real pleasure. Uh, Patrick, Jory, thank you also very much for co-hosting with me. 
Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then of course, please do also check out the interview that I did with Patrick in 2016 on his Thailand's theory of monarchy. That interview and thousands of others are available for you free of charge right now on the New Books Network website or via iTunes. Hey, thank God, she get the chin to vote.